Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, January 28th, we're studying Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39. Jesus calls a tax collector to follow him, and then he faces questions concerning his eating company and his eating practices. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be back. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little bit of context. Pastor Cook, what do we need to know about the Gospel of Luke, what he's been recording for us up to this point leading into this text? Yeah, uh, the Jesus has recently called the disciples, and, uh, and he's uh, exercised some signs and powers, which would include uh, healing a paralytic, healing a, a leper, and he's going to get into um, some disagreements with the Pharisees, um, which <clears throat> is going to kind of follow the trajectory of how Jesus's public ministry begins. So in Luke, after Jesus is baptized and driven into the wilderness, he comes back and he is in Nazareth. And he famously reads from the Isaiah scroll and says that this reading has been fulfilled in your hearing, and the people initially initially are very excited uh, about his gracious words, but by the end of the day, they're going to try to kill him. And so that sets the tone for what we can expect in the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, we're going to get these... Um, we're, yeah, we're, we're going to get... through. Um, people who are in favor of him, and we're going to get some people who are opposed to him, violently so, and uh, and that's what we have. And then all of this is happening before the big turn in chapter 9 when he sets his face to Jerusalem. So that's your context. So that, that text in, in Luke 4, where Jesus quotes from the Isaiah scroll, and then he gets rejected, I mean, it seems like you get a little bit of both of those things happening in this text, in the sense that what Jesus says there from Isaiah 61, we're going to see him doing that in the calling of Matthew Levi to be his disciple. That's part of him, you know, proclaiming the good news and setting captives free. And then in at the same token, we're going to see the, the rejection of Jesus by the Pharisees match up with the rejection he received in Nazareth. So, I mean, when we talked about that text in Luke 4, we talked about how it's very programmatic. And I suppose in that sense, in the calling of Levi and then in the, the subsequent continued rejection by the Pharisees, both of those things from that text in Luke 4 continue to happen here in Jesus' ministry. Right. And in, in that text of Luke 4, um, it, it kind of as the parallels or the way it lines up um, is the part that really gets uh, the people bent out of shape is uh, Jesus's reference to the widow at Zarephath and the healing of Naaman, kind of these unlikely recipients of the graciousness of God. 
And so Levi, though not a Gentile, um, is by virtue of his vocation as tax collector, if you can even call that a vocation, uh, his occupation as tax collector is an unlikely recipient of the grace of God, which, again, is going to lead to some uh, vitriol. Yeah, so let's let's see how that plays out in this text. Again, we're in Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I'll pause there. That takes us through verse 32 of the text. Now, I I mentioned it earlier, Pastor Cook, Levi or Matthew. Tell us a little bit about this person, Levi, as he's named here in Luke 5. Yeah, he's called Levi also in the Gospel of Mark. He's called Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew, so this is, you know, the same guy. Uh, It's not uncommon for people uh, of that day and age to have multiple names. So you may recall in Acts when the disciples are casting lots or seeking to replace, in fulfillment of the Scripture, seeking to replace Judas, um, they put forward two men, and the first man who's put forward gets three names, Joseph, Barsabbas, also called Justice, and then Matthias is the other one they put forward, and Matthias is the one on whom the lot falls uh, and is chosen. Likewise, uh, we have the gospel according to Mark is usually associated with a man from the book of Acts who is called John Mark. And so in um, Acts 12, 23 or so, it's, it's near the end of that chapter. It literally says John and then comma, whose other name was Mark. And so we, we shouldn't be surprised that we have um, – kind of multiple names you have uh if you compare the lists of the disciples uh you know who is this you know sometimes you have uh two judases but sometimes there's only one judas uh where does thaddeus fit in who is nathaniel anyway i know uh, there's a lot of tradition saying that nathaniel and early john is actually bartholomew so yeah don't let it throw you off off uh guard i guess uh, Levi, Matthew, we're talking about the same guy. And if you want to get deeper, you know, why Levi here and Matthew over there, I, that I can't, I can't speak to. You know, I was actually thinking about asking you that, so I'm, I'm glad you, you said that. It, it is interesting—well, I don't know if it's interesting or not. Later in Luke, in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus calls his apostles, there Luke gives the name Matthew as opposed to Levi— and, right, and he will do it again in Acts. Right. So, he and applies the name Matthew. Just to maybe, to, and this is speculation on my part, but as you were talking about, you know, the two names and and something you said earlier in Luke five at his calling, he names him Levi, and I, I believe that's the Hebrew name. Matthew would be the Greek name, if I, if I'm not mistaken about that. Uh, Levi going back, you know, to the Old Testament, one of the sons of Jacob. So 
perhaps, and you can tell me what you think, or you can just not speculate at all with me, perhaps Levi being a tax collector, on the one hand, he's a member of the people of Israel, and yet on the other hand, he's a tax collector. And so there's maybe a bit of a, a question as to what's going on with this guy, and and then put that in, in the context of what you said about Jesus is going to show grace to someone who's unlikely. That's just a, a thought here, that maybe the name Levi is meant to highlight this discrepancy. Here you've got an Israelite being a tax collector. Jesus is calling him. What's going on? Why is Jesus going to show grace to this guy? A question that Jesus will answer at the end of this section. Uh, that was just some thoughts that I had. Yeah, that's uh, that's possible. I know I've consulted a, a commentary uh, that was not published by CPH um, that says uh, there's often a Semitic name uh, and then like a Greek name, right? Or uh, you've got your your Hebrew name and your Greek name. Hmm. But that same commentary says Levi and Matthew are both Greek, uh, Hebrew names. Oh. And so that complicates the, the milieu. Fair enough. Of information. Um, I, I would be more inclined uh, if I could take some poetic license that uh, in the same way that yeah, uh, Abram becomes Abraham and, you know, Saul becomes Paul, you know, Levi is called Levi, and then upon the calling of by by Jesus, now he's he's known as Matthew. Part of that that new that new identity. That's that's poetic um, speculation. Um, that's not uninformed by scripture, but I a little bit on the speculation side. Sure, sure, okay, all right. I like it. I like it. And and again, iron sharpening iron and recognizing that we're we're going a little bit beyond what the text has. So just to keep that in mind. So, okay, we've got Levi. He's a tax collector. Now, just maybe one of the things that, that stands out here is that Levi is actually at the tax booth when Jesus calls him, which, you know, I mean, Jesus called Peter, James, John when they were fishing. But there's a, a difference here in the, the matter of occupation. And you even said, I don't know if you can call tax collector a vocation. It's an occupation. What Maybe that's the place to start. What's the tax collector? What's the the connotation when you're reading Luke and you hear there's a tax collector that Jesus is calling? What do we need to, to know about that background to help us understand the scandal of what happens here? I, I would set up, because Luke does, in Luke chapter 18... Uh, tax collectors are juxtaposed or they're set in contrast to the Pharisees. So Jesus tells a parable in Luke 18 about a Pharisee and a tax collector going up to the temple to pray. He's setting two very contrasting images here based on uh, the cultural expectation or the historical context. So I would say, or the way I would try to explain this, or let it sink in, is that uh, a Pharisee carries with him an attitude of piety and religious seriousness, whereas a tax collector would be that go-to um, stereotype of a person who is not pious uh, and is not particularly concerned about religious anything. So... Um, and maybe it's a case of falling, you know, off both sides, you know, there's a middle way here, and the tax collector is falling off the horse on one side, and the Pharisee is falling off the horse on the other side. 
So you have your pious, holier-than-thou, arrogant hypocrite on the one side, and then you just have your uh, rogue and um, ne'er-do-well scallywag on the other side. Mm. It, it's interesting that, that you point out in Luke 18, you have the Pharisee and the tax collector put side by side in contrast. And, and I think perhaps something similar is happening here in Luke 5. In just the previous text in, in verses 17 through 26, that's actually the first time the Pharisees show up in the Gospel of Luke. And, and there they reject Jesus, or they begin to reject Jesus. They don't receive him in faith. They question whether or not he can forgive sins. And now here comes a tax collector. And so, I mean, it's, it's almost like he's doing this early on, and then he makes it clear what he's doing later in that, I think, what is a very clear parable there in, in Luke 18 on the difference between the two. So, you know, in, in the previous text here, you've got a Pharisee. Maybe you were expecting when you meet a Pharisee that he's going to receive Jesus, but that didn't happen. And now here you've got a, a tax collector interacting with Jesus, and suddenly this tax collector who isn't known for his piety by any means he does receive Jesus in faith. And so it's almost like you have that, that same juxtaposition here in narrative form that you get maybe a little more directly later in Luke 18 in a parable. I, Yes, that is reasonable and sound. Um, I would add, I suppose, to that, um, if we depart from Luke as an author, uh, Jesus in the par- uh, Sermon on the Mount uh, is talking and he says, uh, you know, about treating other people the way you treat them. He, he says, don't even the tax collectors do the same. Um, and then uh, you have also in Matthew um, 18 with the forgiving one another their sins and the famous go show your brother his fault passage, uh, kind of that church discipline that's usually where that passage is taken at the end of it. If the man never repents, he's told to be treated as a Gentile and a and a tax collector. Um, so there, um, <laughs> the tax collector is is set up is conjoined with Gentiles in general, um, which is uh, an interesting. Um, well, I think it's an interesting concept because in this case, the tax collector is very much at least with Levi. We're, we're talking about a uh, an Israelite. But they, they get lumped together. Eight times in the Gospel of uh, Luke, the tax collectors are said, are immediately followed with the word and sinners. So tax collectors and sinners, are, they're almost synonymous. You can make that, um, and then two times in the Gospel of Luke, you get tax collectors and prostitutes. So without getting too lost in the details, and I would humbly suggest, I'll just straight up, I don't have the area of expertise. What tax are they collecting? What did that look like? How did you secure such work? I, I don't know the answer to any of that stuff. Um, I, I really don't. But the scriptural witness is very clear. Uh, tax collector is synonymous with uh, unpious, ungodly people. Hmm. So these are the, I mean, if we can say they're the bad guys. That's who you right. would normally think the tax collector is not going to be the one to follow Jesus. And and the tax collector doesn't seem like the one that Jesus would approach to to call him to follow. Although, you know, I, as I was thinking about this and going back a few chapters here in, in Luke 3, 
where Luke tells us about the ministry of John the Baptist, there you do have tax collectors coming to John to be baptized and asking him, you know, what should we do? What does our repentance do? And and John instructs them. And, and they're being baptized by John. And then, you know, Jesus shows up to be baptized by John along with all the people who are being baptized. So Jesus has been associated in a maybe an indirect way to you know follow a couple of steps there but Jesus has been associated with tax collectors and sinners already such that when this happens here in Luke 5 maybe it's not as big of a surprise if you've been following along with Luke but as as you're saying for the people at the time to see Jesus approach a tax collector and say follow me and particularly, this is to get back to the point I tried to bring out earlier, particularly while he's actually there doing his job of collecting taxes, this seems like a pretty surprising thing. Yep, you're exactly right. Scandalous to be sure. Um, and that's exactly how it's perceived um, as we move on with the text, is people are kind of scandalized with Jesus's um, relationship uh, with uh this particular tax collector, and soon enough with a number of tax collectors who for at least one event join him. Before we get too far there, just a few more details of this actual calling of Levi. Jesus says, follow me, and then the text says, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. What what does this call actually mean, to follow Jesus? Is it is it only the matter of, okay, he got up and walked behind him? What What does it mean to follow Jesus? And then how does Matthew do that? Or Levi here, sorry. <laughs> You know. Right. The following of Jesus, I would argue, gets a little bit complicated by the text with the next verse. So it says he left everything. I'd like to joke that he left his name behind, and they called him Matthew from thenceforth. (laughs) But um, in the very next verse, Levi is in his house. So did he leave his house? Did he not leave his house? Um then uh, he throws a great banquet, uh, presumably at his own expense. So did he leave his money? Did he not leave his money? It says that there are other tax collectors there suggesting, did he leave his friends? Did he not leave his friends? Um, what, what ex- yeah, so what exactly did he leave behind? It says everything, but that seems to be a little bit nuanced. Um, and uh, maybe it would be, I think the way I would... I think the text would point in this this direction. Uh, Levi appears to die to sin, much like we would say in baptism. Um, he he leaves uh, the old life, the old Adam behind, and he takes up life with Christ. And so that's the following of of Jesus. So is having. Um, uh, you know, having in your possession uh, a house antithetical to uh, being a disciple of Jesus? Apparently not. Um, is being blessed by God with wealth, uh, you know, antithetical to a discipleship? No. It, wealth complicates things. Easier to go through the eye of a needle, a camel, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, but we know uh, also in Luke here, uh, with the rich man and Lazarus passage, he's the, the Lazarus, uh, the poor sinner who dies, um, 
is taken up into the bosom of Abraham. Well, good luck finding a person in the Old Testament wealthier than Abraham. I suppose Solomon would fit the bill, but um, so it's not that. So oh, I think where we can go with a fairly clean conscience and taking into account the whole uh, testimony of the gospel according to Luke and all of Scripture is that he left behind his uh, stubborn insistence to live by worldly or ungodly ways. Hmm. One more thing about the actual call of Levi, which I don't think we've we've touched on specifically yet. The fact that, that Jesus calls Levi while he's sitting at the tax booth, like while he's engaged in this practice, that in the eyes of just about everyone is is off limits, something that he shouldn't be doing. That's when Jesus calls him. What what does that have to say about I mean what it means to be Jesus' disciple and how he comes to us? in the fact that Jesus called him while he was sitting there at the tax booth. Yeah, thank you for bringing us back to this. It's a beautiful gospel picture of God doesn't kind of wait for us to get our act together before he calls us. So I'm reminded of Ephesians 2, while we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, um, God, according to his great mercy, you know, made us alive together with him in Christ. Um, So it's not a you know, to kind of turn like the call to repentance. And that's what this is. And we'll see that verbatim uh, at verse 22. Uh, It wasn't a, I was waiting for Levi to do a little bit of repenting and then I could finally have moldable clay here. Uh, No, Christ comes and he claims people as his own. His word is performative. And that is, that is what happens. So the idea that I would be very cautious, um, or I would caution our listeners to be wary of the type of devotional literature or the online videos or the you know celebrity pastors who are kind of giving this impression like you really kind of need to help God out a little bit. Um, it's just contrary to grace. Um, and certainly contrary to the call of call of Levi, so that um, so the call of Levi is this beautiful gospel gospel story. It should be a source of massive comfort uh, to sinners because we are mired uh, in our sin as we wait for the consummation of the age to come, uh, even even as Christians, and uh, and we need not worry that somehow. You know, Christ is waiting for us somehow. Mm. I, I like you. I like the way you put it with Ephesians two. You know, while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and then just kind of looking at the way that the text is structured here in Luke five, and and thinking elsewhere in the scriptures, and I was reminded of of Lazarus. And I mean, what does Jesus? He goes to the tomb of Lazarus, and he calls out while Lazarus is in the tomb, Lazarus, come out, and he does. Now, granted, Levi here is is living, breathing, but it, it's a similar thing where it, it's not like Levi you know, took the first step or something like that. He was there in his sin, sitting at the tax booth, and that's where Jesus came to him and said, follow me. And as surely as he spoke those words, those words happened, and Levi followed him because of that powerful word of Jesus, just like the word of Jesus brought Lazarus from death into life. Exactly. And... You know, one more step, the same way God calls each and every one of us by name through baptism. 
um, it's uh, it's a living, active Word of God mm. that saves. That's where the the power, efficacy of God's Word is. It is Christ in the flesh, doing His gracious and merciful work. So, newly called by Jesus, having followed him, Levi, as you said, goes home and makes this great feast for Jesus, and he, he brings together these tax collectors and others. I guess just, we've got a couple minutes here before the break. Describe the scene. What What's going on here in, in Levi's home? Well, yeah, a great feast. So, he's he's thrown a party. Um, we've got, a, we've got tax collectors, definitely plural. And then it just says others. Normally we see tax collectors and sinners here. It's just tax collectors and others. The literary critic in me, um, in a good way is going to point out that this tax collector and fill in the blank, um, passage of verse 29 is by Luke the gospel writer, whereas usually when you hear that phrase, tax collectors and sinners, it is Luke as reporter rather than Luke as uh, interpreter or narrator. Um, And so when Luke is given the opportunity to describe tax collectors and the people around him, he doesn't call them tax collectors and sinners. He just says others. I think that testifies to uh, Luke's understand Christocentric, Christ-centered lens through which he's going to view the world, whereas Pharisees, every time they say the word tax collector, it's got to be chased with another bad word, sinner, prostitute, or or things of that sort. So they're throwing a party, and they're throwing it for Jesus. Like, this is, the imagination just goes wild here. Uh, He's called by Jesus, and immediately he's like, I want to throw this guy a party. For for what? What's he done? Well, he's called him out of death to life is what, is what he's done. That seems to have been understood um, that, uh, that a good, uh, a positive outcome has come from an external source here. Uh, Jesus Christ has brought a good thing. So he's going to honor uh, Christ uh, in his actions. He's going to throw. He's going to throw a big party. This is a thing worth celebrating, and it is. Mm. And that is what's going to get the Pharisees up in arms or angry here in a minute. That's right. I mean, who who could object to a party? It would seem for such a wonderful, wonderful event. Well, the Pharisees will, and we'll pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFU. We're looking at Luke five with Pastor Tim Cook. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, January 28th. We're studying Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39 with Pastor Tim Cook. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. 
Pastor Cook, prior to the break, we were talking about the call of Levi. Jesus has called him out of death into life. Levi has made the great feast for Jesus there in his house. There's this large company of tax collectors and others. It's a party. Who could be upset? The Pharisees and the scribes. And and they go to Jesus' disciples. They don't confront Jesus directly, it seems, although they want to confront. I mean, it's, this is about Jesus. What What's their problem? Why, why don't they like a party? Who, who couldn't like a party? Yep, it's uh, the guilty by association party. That's their problem, it would appear, which is, uh, you know, Jesus is having a good time, but are you aware of the, the, the baggage surrounding the people you're eating with? Um, I think it's easy, maybe easier today than it was even five years ago for modern-day 21st-century Americans uh, to kind of track along with this stuff because of the prominence of cancel culture, mm. where you drudge up some grievance from the past, you blow it out of proportion, you kind of stir the outrage, and then you follow that with the expectation that that person will be shunned, ignored, hated, mm. etc. And... Um, so uh, there seems to be a little bit of, you know, I don't want to call this cancel culture. I, I think that does a disservice, but it, it should be easy for us to under identify with. They are, they're objecting to who Jesus is hanging out with. What's the significance of, of the eating and drinking with, with the tax collector? Why is, why is that the particular association that they've got this problem with? Uh, right. So the, Probably because when we move on, I guess uh, John, who is preparing the way of the Lord, is is doing the opposite. He's fasting. And so John has been preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus is taking up the mantle from John, so to speak, um, and fulfilling uh, that role. But it seems to be coming, it seems divergent in application and so, wait, I thought we're, we're supposed to be fasting. You know, this isn't a um, sinners and their repentance, you know, sackcloth ashes. That's what we're looking for here. But that's not what we're getting. We're getting uh, rejoicing, feasting, jubilation. And uh, I, I would argue that is primarily their concern. Okay, so the, the feasting doesn't fit with their picture of what repentance is. But even, I mean, I think even more than that, isn't there, like, do the Pharisees think that the tax collectors can repent or are even worthy of this sort of thing? I mean, it seems to be, it, it seems to be more than just, hey, these guys haven't repented, but more of like, I'm not sure that these guys can repent. What do you mean, tax collectors, Jesus? How, how could they? It's more like, it seems like an, an us and them dynamic and not only just, they're not doing it the right way if that makes sense. That does make sense. I don't know that I want to add to what you've said because I don't know that I would Fair enough. Help. All right. Very good. So there's this us and them dynamic. What? How, how could it be these guys, Jesus? They're, they're the impious. They're the ones who are the, quote, bad guys. How can you be eating with them? This is the question they actually address to Jesus' disciples, but Jesus is the one to respond. He knows what's going on. 
take us into to Jesus' answer. He says, and I think this is pretty famous, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What is Jesus' answer to the question the Pharisees have posed? His answer is, uh, I'm here to heal sick people. Um, and they're sick, right? I'm, I'm here to bring sinners out of their sin. And that has occurred. And so a celebration is, is following. And there's a, there really is a lot to unpack here. A, a significant part of this is going to come back to the matter of association and how we, uh, consider these things. Um, so again, the, the scribes are grumbling to the disciples, you know, why do you, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? So not why are you eating and drinking, but it's who are you doing it with? Tax collectors and sinners. Now the question itself is telling. It's not, why are you eating and drinking with Jesus? Okay. So, so the, the, the perceived sinfulness or the persona non grata nature of the tax collectors and uh, vague sinners here uh, is clouding or um, over scandalizing the, the Pharisees. Uh, <laughs> they're there with Jesus and they're not seeing Jesus. Um, they're seeing, they're seeing the, the sinner. So they're letting the sin trump the salvation, which is not good. Um, and then Jesus replies, well, Hey, those who have well, or those who are well have no need of a physician. So he's kind of saying, well, what do you expect? What do you want me to do? Now, I think the reason uh, faithful Christians and Lutherans in particular may stumble over this verse is because we have been so well catechized to know that every human being is unwell. We are, as we say, by nature sinful and unclean or poor, miserable sinners. Okay, so Jesus isn't making a, a, an objective statement of fact that there are a certain segment of people on earth that don't need repentance because they're already righteous. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is uh, sinners, <laughs> uh, sick people need a physician. And, uh, and so he's kind of playing into their arrogance and saying, since you seem to think that you've got it all figured out, I am going to go to the people who you claim not to have figured it out. But we know, again, well-catechized Christians, that all people need, uh, need Jesus. So what the Pharisees should have done, instead of grumbling and complaining, is sat down and reclined at table with Jesus too and he would have been happy to receive them. And in fact, we see that in the Gospel of John with Nicodemus, who is indeed a Pharisee. So verses 31 and 32 then are a call, in addition to telling us what Jesus has come to do, but as he speaks that to the Pharisees, this is him calling them into the party, which would involve repentance for them, and then feasting there with Jesus. This is really a, a way of him inviting them to this repentance, this repentant life and faith with him. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Um, come, sh- 
sharing your master's happiness. That's right. I guess. Feel yeah. a eschatological text that probably doesn't apply here, but it's a good line. Um, I have, yeah, it's not, this is, this is what I've been called, absolutely what I've been called to do. Um, I had something I wanted to say and it, it slipped my mind, but, uh, oh, it was this. I, this, I think, is a very beautiful passage for pastors and faithful Christians to latch onto um, and hold ever before their eyes that they not let the depths of human depravity blind them to the goodness of Christ, which is, and I say this to people who join our congregation, new members, whether they transfer in or come through new membership class, I spend a whole little mini speech or rant telling them you have to understand that this congregation is made up of sinners. Like you are joining a, like people who worship here are going to hurt you. That's not what they want to do. I don't think they wake up in the morning and say, how can we make sure we really offend and scandalize this family that's looking to join our church? It's not that, but the, we really do need a savior. We really do need outside help to rescue us because we're really that depraved. And this is what Jesus has come to do. Now you can stand over there to the side with your arms crossed and wag your, or wag your finger and say, Oh, well, you know, that's not good. That looks bad. That looks hypocritical. Or you can swallow your pride. You can forgive your brother and you can recline at table with Jesus. And I think that's uh really, really important. And I say this especially as one who spent his entire life in very obvious rural ministry where communities are small and tight knit. And so to bring a new member into the church at all is to ask people to come join a church filled with people whose family and family histories go back multiple generations and maybe they were fighting over land or inheritance or whatever. And so you always got to work through this stuff. Like, they're, no, they're actually sinners here. Get over it. That can't be the thing that scandalizes you. You will lose sight of Jesus, and you'll lose repentance besides. Uh, very well said, Pastor Cook. And I just uh, the only thing I would add is this is going to be a theme that we're going to see extended and amplified in the Gospel of Luke. I mean, the, some of the things you're saying are reminding me particularly of, and I'm sure there are other places, but the two that come to my mind right away are Luke 15 and the parable of what I like to call the two lost sons, and particularly what right. the father says to the second, the older son. That's where, I mean, I think that's going to be the clearest explanation. And then another example of this is going to come up in Luke 19, where you get, and I believe he's called the chief tax collector there, Zacchaeus, and his response right. to Jesus. So just to, let's hold on to that in our back pocket as we continue to read through Luke. And that Luke 15 Luke. text begins with, now the tax collectors were yes. drawing near to hear Jesus. Like, they're in view. Um, so, it, yeah, it's so, both of them, that tax collector theme, 15 and 19, you're right, you're right. Yeah, so so something to, to keep in mind as we keep reading through Luke here on Sharper Iron. Let's let's pick up the rest of the text that we've got for today. So on, on the heels of this, Jesus has said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And you started to introduce this. There comes a question about fasting. So we're picking, now in, picking up now in Luke 5.33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast 
often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Luke 5, verses 33 to 39. So, Pastor Cook, again, what, what's the connection here? Why, why is there this question now about fasting, what the disciples of John, the disciples of Pharisees do compared to Jesus' disciples? It, right. Uh, the connection is repentance. Um, John is out in the wilderness calling, right, baptism of repentance. We have this, uh, who told you to flee from the wrath to come, repent and believe the gospel. So John uh, has taken a rather prominent role through the first three chapters of Luke um, and uh, is a cultural tour de force. Um, and you'll continue to deal with John and his baptism and his ministry all the way through, what, 19 chapters of the book of Acts? Mm. Um, so it, it's, a, it's definitely a situation. Now, when John does his stuff, uh, he is... Um, he's calling, he's fasting, and he's praying. And I love this, where they say, uh, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. Well, the, dis- the disciples themselves, in, I believe, Luke 11, will approach Jesus and say, uh, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Mm. And it's one of those rare times where Jesus doesn't have something uh, clever to say in reply. He just immediately says, oh, yeah, okay, this is how you're going to do that. And then you get the Lord's Prayer. Um, But they're contrasting, again, you and John are both claiming uh, to be about repentance. Um, John is doing it this way. You and your disciples seem to be doing it in a different, different way. Help us reconcile that. Now, I would argue they're not asking the question in good faith, but Jesus is going to give them a good faith reply. Um, And so uh, he goes on from there. Right. So in that reply, Jesus uses the image of of a wedding. He talks about wedding guests and and imagine this situation, which, I mean, is it really hard to imagine? Imagine a a wedding where everyone isn't eating while the party's going on. That, That just doesn't make sense. How does... How does this image apply to what Jesus is being asked? It applies in this way. The, the wedding language, as we might see in the book of Revelation, is very much, here's the fancy word that I know you're aware of because we're friends, but I'm not sure about your listeners, uh, eschatological or eschatology, kind of this end times, this fulfillment of the work of Christ. Uh, or the work of God in the world through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so um, when God fulfills all promises and behold, the former things are forgotten and all things are made new, that imagery is often described as a wedding. So in Revelation, we have the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband and we talk about in the Lord's Supper the marriage feast of the Lamb, which will have no end. 
And so he's he's tapping into that. He's alluding to that. He's, and he's doing it on purpose. Um, hey, God's promises um, for the fulfillment and conclusion of all things, it's happening. It's happening. And it's happening now uh, in me. So something new is going on. The end of the world is at hand. And that was the preaching of John. Uh, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? The end is nigh, uh, if you prefer. And um, <clears throat> so with that said, Jesus is saying, I'm the, I'm the bridegroom. Like, I'm, that's, this is what this is about. I'm here for my bride, and we're going to throw a party. And that's uh, the appropriate reply and response uh, to these good and do things of God. Now, he'll go on to say the time will come <laughs> when the fasting will come back and be appropriate. Um, and additionally, in referencing himself as the bridegroom, he's honoring the fasting that has happened in the past. So he's not saying, I'm contradicting John. He said, we got new rules because we're in a new situation. What What is the time that he speaks of when the bridegroom is taken away and then the fasting will come? What's he talking about there? Yeah, that would be the, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So the, the fasting of the disciples, that's going to be, you know, Jesus is going to set his face toward Jerusalem, and he's going to drink the cup of the Father, and he's going to suffer, uh, uh, but at, at the same time die and be glorified. And so that's, that's the fasting that will come. It's not all going to be uh, happy feasting. They're not feasting in that upper room, uh, you know, the day after the crucifixion. They're terrified. Um, and, uh, and this is the gospel that will tell you, right, the road to Emmaus, well, we had hoped that this is the one uh, to, to redeem Israel. So you kind of have that dashed hope expectation. They're living in this, this time of sorrow. Um, of course, that will be brought into new light by the resurrected Christ, but I'm ahead of myself now. That's okay. That's okay. Let's get, just for the sake of time. Let, let's keep moving then into the parable that Jesus tells. He, and I suppose there's there's two images here. He talks about putting a patch on a garment, and then he talks about putting wine into wineskins. How how does how do these parables work together? What's the point Jesus is making? Okay, yeah. So the point is, uh, the old things are going to be the old rituals. Um, expectations, the old covenants, uh, the old practices of piety, uh, the fasting, the, the feasts, the festivals, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of the First Fruits, uh, the Sabbath rest, the not working, that stuff, even the covenant of circumcision. These are the old things, all of which are pointing to the coming of the bridegroom for his bride. Now Jesus has arrived. And so those old things that are pointing to this event now are not necessary because they have fulfilled the purpose uh, for which they were put into place. So an uh, analogy that I will frequently give to my parishioners is if you think about ordering something from Amazon, um, say a vacuum cleaner, I don't know, um, and it comes in the mail, uh, and you bring it into the house, and you open it up, and that vacuum cleaner is just 
perfectly packaged, right? You've got the the airbags in there that prevent it from bouncing around, and you've got the egg carton-like uh, styrofoam or stuffing or cases. This this packaging helps deliver the vacuum to your house. But once you open the package, that packaging that is sold, its purpose is done. You don't need to save that silly stuff anymore. You don't need to save that packaging. The vacuum isn't going back in the box. It's never intended to stay in the box. That packaging delivered the goods to where it needed to be. Uh, the old way, uh, whether it's the fasting, the ritual, the ceremonial laws, your Levitical laws, uh, all that stuff is helping to prepare people to receive the bridegroom Christ. He's here now. So that stuff's got to go. Um, and that's why Jesus says, if you're going to try to take my presence as the bridegroom and the forgiveness of sins uh, and the new covenant, and you're going to try to fit it into that old system, it ain't going to work. Just like you're not going to get the vacuum to work while it's still in the box. Um, and so, and if you try to reconcile or you try to make these two things compatible, you're going to ruin both. Uh, you're going to spill the wine and you're going to ruin the wineskin. It's like, nope, you need the new stuff. Uh, new wineskins require new things. And I would argue that Christ coming to his people is met with a new system, a new piety or a new practice. Practice is probably the best word uh, because of its generic nature. You find that in the new covenant of his blood, the Lord's Supper. So you don't have the Lord's Supper. You have foreshadows of it in the Old Testament. But the new covenant in the Lord's Supper of Jesus Christ, that that shows up when Jesus gets here. This is the new wineskin to hold the new wine that is Jesus Christ on earth. Hmm. Um, and that's just one example. There there would be others besides. And, and then to add that last line uh, in verse 39, Jesus says, No one after drinking old wine desires the new, for he says, the old is good. This is not Jesus making an objective claim that the old system is better than the new one. This is Jesus uh, acknowledging the difficulty of moving from the old system to the new system, which is, yeah, it's going to be hard. In the same way Lutherans joke about, you know, change and, oh, we don't like that. I mean, that's, that's a pretty tired joke, I think, within the synod. Um, but uh, it, it's a tired joke because it's literally been around since the time of Christ. Okay, so yeah, that was going to be my question. In verse 39, when Jesus says, you know, no one after drinking the old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good, that that is almost, I mean, it's using a similar imagery to his parable, but he's making a different point there, indicating, I, I suppose, you know, that he's not necessarily surprised that he's receiving this kind of pushback from the Pharisees in the way that, that he's doing things, not just in their question here about fasting, but in what's happened previously with his eating with tax collectors and what's coming in the, the Sabbath controversy that he's going to face, that this isn't really surprising because this this way that they've been holding on to, of course they want to hold on to that, but to shift to Jesus is going to be a is requiring just such a, a transformation in their thinking that it's going to be difficult. That's that's his point. Yes. One of the proverbs that I use maybe more than any other in my ministry is this phrase that people don't know what they like, they like what they know. Hmm. And that is, and all you have to do is think of hymnody to understand this. 
Um, people don't know what hymns they like. Uh, they like the hymns that they know. <laughs> and so you try to introduce a new hymn, and they're like, ah, it's not Amazing Grace. It's not How Great Thou Art. It's not Just As I Am. And you're like, oh, I, I know that, but, you know, this is look at these words. Look at how beautiful it is, et cetera. That applies here. Mm. Um, and that's true for many, 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 many practices. And I think that's uh, the truth that Jesus is capturing in that in that final line, as you phrased it, um, let's not be surprised at the pushback. And and that would be, uh, I know we're short on time here, but that's a pretty important theme is curbing expect, like what's a realistic expectation here? Um, and Jesus is saying, my ministry isn't uh, null and void because some people aren't approving of it. And um, I think he's trying to warn his people of that. They seem to have been um, built into this idea or bought into this idea that when the Christ comes, everything is going to change. Everyone's going to get it. It's going to be this massive kind of uh, reformation that's supported by all people. No, 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 not at all. And so Jesus wants people to not be scandalized by the pushback that happens along the way. With about a minute and a half here, Pastor Cook, help us to wrap this text up. We've talked about the call of Levi, these questions about fasting, Jesus as both the physician and the bridegroom. Help us to see the good news about Jesus from this text. Yeah, I'll focus on uh, the word repentance, which is this idea of turning away, or this idea of turning. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite simple. Uh, any turn toward Jesus, any movement toward Jesus is by its nature a movement away from sin. So repentance uh, is, you know, if you're running to Jesus, that's repentance. You, you are. Uh, and so you have Levi who has followed Jesus. He's thrown this party uh, for Jesus. Jesus is the new thing. And if you run to the new thing, that's, that's, that's what Jesus is calling people to, because uh, the new thing is Christ, and it ain't, it, it ain't sin. You're running away from sin to Jesus. So that, that's the repentance. That's the good news, the good news in this text. Um, recline at table with Jesus. Pastor Tim Cook is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota, helping us today with Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39. Pastor Cook, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 5 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.